This morning we continue our series called Sin No More. And for you who are just joining us today, we'd like to explain why we initiated this series. We felt it imperative to once again remind believers in Jesus Christ of the severity of sin before God. Taking all of our cultural considerations into mind when doing so, Today, more than ever, the believer in Jesus Christ needs, I think at times, to be reminded of the severity of the sin that was overcome by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The gospel, the good news, is never fully appreciated or embraced until you understand the bad news, our depravity before God, knowing that there's nothing we could have done to have saved ourselves It was only through the efforts of our Lord and Savior coming and seeking to save those who were lost. And for that we say amen and thank you God, man. Sin is serious before God. How do I know that to be a reality, a truth? Just consider what God needed to do to overcome the sins of the world. Something that could only be covered by the sacrifices made in the Old Testament through animals that were given on a yearly basis for the simple covering of sins. Not the elimination or the washing, but the simple covering of sins. It required God Himself to step out of heaven and to go and to place Himself in a position of sacrifice on the cross, subjugating Himself to His own creation and then allowing His creation to humiliate Him to the point of the death of the cross. And then in that death, the atonement of sin for the world has taken place. God confirmed and validated the authenticity of that sacrifice because on the third day, Christ rose again. But every so often, I think our culture weighs upon us and begins to diminish the seriousness and severity of sin in the mind of the believers. God hates sin. Let's understand that. But he loves the sinner. You and I need to demonstrate that in our own lives. We should be appalled at sin. And yet too often we laugh at it. We, we become very lackadaisical concerning it. And I'm not only referring to the uh, acceptance of sin, but also the practice of sin in believers' lives. Hey man, we need to abandon all of that and just grasp the glory of God and allow Him to live in and through us. I came to Saving Faith when I was 16 years old and I heard something one time and that someone said about their conversion and I took that to, for myself also. I've gave Satan too many years of my life already. I'm not going to give him any more. I'm living full on for the full glory of God whatever that may mean. I draw your attention to John chapter 8, and we're using this as a template of illustration. In John chapter 8, we have a scenario that is accounted for us. It's an account of a woman caught in the act of adultery. It is a place in the Gospels where sin is at center stage, and the question therefore becomes, how then to deal with it? But one of the observations that we made from the beginning of our series was this one simple fact, that out of four of the participants that were surrounding this scenario, none of them 
debated the fact that adultery was sin before God. There was a complete consensus amongst all who were there that adultery was sin before God. And we've been exploring that reality. What do I mean by that? We're exploring how did they come to such a consensus? Because today, our culture, our society, has every, anything but a consensus when, when it comes to right and wrong, correct? You can put ten people in a room and get ten different standards of ethics, won't you? The Bible says that people in the last days will begin doing what's right in their own eyes, meaning they're going to be the self-determiner of what is right and wrong. And if that is the case, you will have ten people creating ten different standards concerning the reality of right and wrong. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, but here we have a place of consensus. We asked ourselves, how did we come to that consensus? And we looked at all four participating groups. Number one was Jesus Christ. As we find him, if we read the account, let's begin in verse 2. Early in the morning, he, that is Jesus, again came to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And then he said, to test, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Obviously, there were two different agendas at play. There were the religious leaders who brought the woman looking for what I would consider a horizontal or simply a practical resolution to the situation. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, was certainly concerned about the longevity of the scenario. He was not looking for simply a practical resolution that would end in the stoning of the woman to death but possibly her eternal salvation to allow her to be forgiven of this sin and to embrace the work in which he was yet about to do on the cross. So we see those agendas play there completely before us. But we looked at sin through the perspective of Jesus, the offense that sin is to God. We then went to the religious leaders and then we looked at the sin in their eyes and how they began to try to atone for sin apart from sacrifice. And then we moved farther into our discussion. And we looked at, as we continue today to look at, the sin from the perspective of the individuals who were gathered there to simply hear Jesus teach, the third of the fourth component. The fourth being the woman herself. And we'll deal with her perspective and our individual perspective when we come to that point. 
But one of the fascinating observations that we have to understand from this particular account is how did a group of men, most likely, historically, it would most likely be men gathered to hear Jesus in this portion of the temple at this time, go from a place where they're simply being instructed by Jesus to a place where they could be provoked to take up stones and to stone a woman caught in the act of adultery. I believe with the historians, and I agree with them, that it would not have been the Pharisees who lifted the stones, but the men congregated there to do so. Uh, Pharisees rarely got their hands dirty. Remember when Paul was taking out Stephen to be martyred, he didn't cast the stones. He was one that simply held the coats. He watched over that as Stephen was the first martyred to be martyred there in the book of Acts. What brought these men to such conviction that would move them in such a short amount of time simply on the basis of the accusation of the Pharisees and the woman standing there herself without any consideration to where the man is? So that doesn't even come into play. They're not even fulfilling the law perfectly because both the man and the woman would be dealt with in the equal manner before the law of God. Only the woman stands here. But I was fascinated to discover how quickly these people could be moved in such conviction. Taking a person's life is not an easy thing to do. Just last year, I was invited with a group of men from our church to go shooting. I fired my first gun ever. It was one of the most sobering things I ever did. And I never had the opportunity up until that point. So they asked me to go out shooting. And I thought, okay, we're going to go out shooting little things. They had all these cans set up and all these mannequins set up. And I was like, oh my goodness, what, am I, what have I gotten myself into? Am I going to be recruited into a militia at this point? What's happening? But I'll tell you something. Now, I've watched television shows and movies where individuals use handguns to take another person's life. We see it all the time. But I will tell you, when I held those guns in my hand, anything from a 22 up to a shotgun and a 44 Magnum, I was like, oh, what it takes. How much I must be provoked to see maybe my family in danger before I could even consider pointing a gun at another human being. There was a reality, a sober reality that came to me very quickly. Very quickly. And yet these men went from a Bible study to a stoning in seconds. Minutes. Consider that. The only way you can go to such a place is on the basis of what I would call significant, severe conviction. Correct? They had to know that they were justified in doing what they were doing before God to allow them to move to such a place. And how did they get there? We discovered last week that it is the Word of God that sets the standard for you and I concerning what is sin and what is not sin. That was the question that we began to embark on last week And that is simply, how do we know what sin is? Not just in its theoretical definition, but specifically, what is sin before God? 
And we discovered that it was the Word of God from the beginning that set the standard of right and wrong for those who are His. Adam and Eve were told from the beginning that they could eat of any tree except the one, correct? And God also laid the consequences out very specifically in what would occur if they did eat from that tree, and unfortunately they did. Then we move to Moses, given the Ten Commandments. And the plethora of examples that we have from that time forward where God states, if you do these things, I will bless you. If you don't do these things, these curses shall come upon you as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 28. As New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, where is the standard of our ethics found? That is the question that we wrestle with. And understand that sin comes in two forms. It comes in sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission is where God tells us what to do and we choose not to do that. That is a sin of omission. A sin of commission is when he tells us not to do something and we do it anyway. We've committed sin in that regard. In asking the question based upon what I would consider an ignorance of the identity of sin, I found myself traveling to Leviticus chapter 4, where we have in the law specific instructions for those who commit sin unintentionally or unknowingly. And God lays down the procedure in which he put in place at that time for those occurrences. But there were some principles that I drew from that passage. And the first principle that I drew from that passage that we adopted going forward is that the simple fact that we can be oblivious to what sin is or what is sin is not shows and demonstrates that we cannot be the sole determiner of what is right and wrong in and of ourselves. We can't do it. If we, don't, if we have any doubt of what is sin and what is not sin, then we cannot be the determiners of what is sin and what is not sin. Secondly, we then therefore cannot calculate what I would call the atoning factor of that sin. For example, even in our judicial system today, if you were to go out after church and go to the store and steal something from that store, leave... And while you're driving home, you became convicted because you did go to church that morning. And now you found yourself stealing something right afterwards. And you're like, I can't do that. That is wrong. I don't think God would be happy with what I have just done. So I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to return what I have stolen and everything is going to be okay. Is that the fact? No. You can return it, and that is the right thing to do, and I hope that no one after church today goes and steals anything. But if you do, and you decide to return it, understand that the store then can still prosecute you legally, and there may be further consequences in which you are to suffer. Correct? That's the, what I would call the atoning factor. Okay, so you maybe made the situation right by returning what you did, but you didn't pay for the action itself. If I can't decide what sin is and what sin is not, then how do I decide what the atoning factor is? Only God can do that. Only God can, can determine what that atoning factor is going to require. And number three, it pointed me to the identity of the fact that we are completely helpless to rectify our sinful nature going forward. 
Our sinful nature going forward cannot be rectified by anything that I can personally do in and of myself. It has to be a work of God in my life. Those points then carried us through our study last week and brought us to the realization that the Christian's uh, determination of ethics comes from God and the world's comes from the popular opinion of that society. One statistic that I read in between our times together stated this. Surveys tell us that most people in the Western society claim to be moral relativists. That is, that they claim that what is right for one person is not necessarily right for another. But it is very easy to say there are no objective or absolute moral principles. It is much more difficult, however, to live as if there are none. Think about that for a moment. The, word, the meaning of what they're saying is that how do you function as a society if that society does not carry absolute morals within its standards? You can't. You would never have a cohesive society if everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes without any moral standards governing the collective will of each and every one. Meaning that our nation has laws that cannot be violated. If they're violated, you can be persecuted for them. And that prosecution is then a deterrent from us doing these things. I like what Augustine said. Right is right, even if no one's doing it. Wrong is wrong, even if everyone's doing it. The populace does not determine what is right and wrong. If you approach our culture, our society, human individuals from an evolutionary point of view, you have a real difficulty when it comes to the issue of ethics. And they know that. So the ethical standard by the populace that braces evolutionary standards must then agree that it's the populace, it's the overall public opinion that dictates overall truth of right and wrong. But they'll also concede that it's the individual then determines if it's wrong and right for themselves. So it's kind of convoluted. But we as Christians, and here's where it comes to us today, that's the way our society acts and reacts to the issue of ethics. But you and I, who are in Christ, have to understand that we are under a higher authority. And that is the authority of our God. And our God has made it plain within His Word to describe and to tell us what is wrong from right, what is sin and righteousness before Him. It's our God who has distributed that to us. And it wasn't Uh, by haphazard nature in which he decided what was right and wrong. It was based solely upon his character. God wants you and I who are believers in Jesus Christ to reflect his character through our actions. How do we know this? Simple. A verse that Peter quotes from the Old Testament. Be holy, for I am holy. This is our mandate. God wants us as believers in Him to ethically reflect His character in and through our actions, our decisions, our thoughts, and our words. Demonstrating that we are truly believers and followers of Jesus Christ. That we are new creations in Him rather than being 
led by our own personal passions and lusts and so forth. As we stated last week, the moral scale of our society is a scale that continuously slides, and it's always sliding in one direction, to complete moral depravity. But we as believers in Jesus Christ, even though we are surrounded in such a culture, need to shine, if it were, the righteousness and the glory of God by our actions, reflecting His character, His nature, in all that we do, act, or think. From the very beginning, God made it clear that it was His Word that dictates to us those things that are right and wrong, and it is Still that way today in our society, our culture, our time today. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where I bring you into a second contextual group. As we stood and looked at the illustration painted for us there in John 8, it is a cultural context in John 8 that we are not accustomed to. Why? Because we're not all on the same page, are we? We have two radically different ideas of thinking in our culture today, right? We have the world's thinking and we have the believer's thinking, the Christian thinking. And they are diametrically opposed to one another. Why? Because each one is a reflectant of the ruler of that individual. Our society is governed by the ruler of this world. The Bible clearly indicates that. So the individuals who are apart from Christ are reflecting the nature of that ruler where you and I as believers in Jesus Christ should on a continuously basis seek to act according to his nature and character on a daily basis. As we come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, I find a chapter which gives us the same cultural context and the same remedy for the situation that we find ourselves in that the individuals of the Old Testament also had for themselves. Paul, as he is writing to a young man named Timothy, who became a pastor in a church in which Paul had established in a region of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus itself, Paul then left Timothy there to take the reins and to begin to lead that church and to find other men that could lead the church with him and so forth. And in so doing, Timothy found it was a difficult job and he had opposition And there were antagonists towards him. So Paul writes to him in the second letter, a letter that was Paul's last before Paul himself went to his death, writing to encourage this young man in whom he loved dearly, but warned him, stating that he must understand in verse 1 of chapter 3, after exhorting him in chapter 2 to be the man of God that God has called him to be, he now comes to chapter 3, verse 1, and begins to state and commands in the word that we find here in verse 1, but understand this, the word understand is what's known as an imperative in the Greek. It means, this is a command, I need you to know this. I need you to know this. It's something that we all need to take a point and take a step back and say, okay, we've got to prepare ourselves for what's coming next. This is important to Paul. It's his last letter before he dies for the faith. He's writing to Timothy, a young man who wants to serve God and go forward even after Paul's departure to heaven. He wants to carry it on. Paul says, I want you to understand this. 
Consider this a letter written to you from your father or your mother. After they had died, they wanted you to open it because they wanted to leave you with a few things to consider and to, and to uh, work through for yourself because they felt it was so important for them to do so. They needed you to have this information. That's what he's saying here. I need you to have this information. But understand this. And in that word understand, we have the embracement of experience. Not only do I want you to understand this theoretically, but I want you to understand this practically as it plays itself out. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. If you're reading from the King James or the old uh, New King James, the word difficulty there is a word that I prefer. It's perilous. Perilous times are coming. Difficult times are coming. You need to know this. You need to understand that in the last days, when are the last days? You're in them. The last days started in Acts chapter 2. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter then explained the arrival of the Holy Spirit by stating Joel chapter 2 and stated very clearly, this is the beginning of the last days. You're in them. Long period of time. And as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, the scale of difficulty is going to increase. It's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get radically worse before it gets better. So in that word difficulty, let us understand that there is more than just a difficult time. It means to cause trouble, hardship, with the implications of violence even. Troublesome times. One suggested that this verse be translated, in the last days people will suffer very much. All right, do we have your attention yet? The only time this word difficult is used in the New Testament is, and in Uxter literature at that time, was to describe a raging sea or a dangerous animal. And both scenarios give you the idea of unpredictability. I don't know how this wild animal is going to react. Don't you just love when you're on you know, Facebook and someone puts what they think is a cute a uh, little video. Oh, we went out to our backyard and there was this friendly little squirrel. And we went and we gave the little squirrel a cookie and here the squirrel is eating out of our hands and then the, his friend the opossum came and the opossum told the raccoon and now we're feeding them all by hand. I'm just waiting for those animals to just go ninja on them and just start devastating them. They're unpredictable. The worst thing that a seaman could find himself navigating was rough raging seas they didn't have the technical instruments that we have today to show them and to help them understand and to navigate through that very difficult moment in time so the great difficulty that we are going to experience that is described as perilous times also includes within it unpredictability why verse 2 for people will be lovers of self lovers of money Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, 
heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. The word people there is used plural, and I'll tell you who I believe this group is speaking of in just a moment. But this is going to be indicative of a group of people towards the end, and it is the complete antithesis of who God would have us to be. Please understand that. Everything that we read here is centered upon self rather than the abandonment of self. If we choose to abandon God as the standard of all ethics, the standard of all right and wrong, sin and righteousness, it leaves a vacuum with inside of the individual. That vacuum will be filled by the most natural element, and that is their selves, their own personal self. Satan played upon this with Eve as Eve was tempted to know that this fruit was going to benefit her in some way, allowing her to enjoy God in a more deep and intimate way. Even though she was in a state of perfection, she thought she could perfect perfection. This is demonstrating for us that self has taken control of this group of people that Paul is describing. And manifesting in these different manners, which is almost a pursuit of self-survival and self-preservation, their interactions with God, their interactions with others are both displayed here. And notice the term of affection that is used often here, lovers of self, is the first characteristic that then goes on to describe the people that Paul is alluding to here. Lovers of self, then is followed by lovers of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. We know that. The reason for it is that money can give individuals what I call a false sense of sovereignty. Wealth can permit you to do things that you may not be otherwise able to do. It feels that you have more control over your personal life than you actually do. So it would make complete sense that money would be something loved by these individuals. Because again, self is driving it all. Now we can honestly see that our nation, our culture today is saturated with self, correct? We have a magazine called Self. The favorite portrait of all individuals who have cell phones today is called a selfie. And even the technology in which we use is all about you. And wants you to know that you are number one. An iPhone. iPad. iMac. It's all about you. I told you, Apple is of the devil. No, I'm kidding. But we, we see that. We see the saturation of self. Well, notice how the saturation of self becomes more prevalent in the abandonment of God. It's the natural conclusion. Here we see an abandonment of God, 
self raised to its point of complete uh, apostasy here. Paul's saying, avoid such people. Why? And here's the most scary factor of it all. This group of individuals, they have an appearance of godliness, but they have no desire for its power. They will be religious people, but have no desire for its power. I believe that this is describing the apostate church as it gets closer to the return of Jesus Christ in its entirety. And out of this group of people, Paul is then going to describe for us that false teachers will arise because these people are going to hear what they want to hear. They're going to want to um, raise up for themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And so Paul's making it clear to Timothy, this is what's going to occur. But what we have to understand for ourselves in this progression is that understand that if our culture continues to move in this fashion, which I say that it will, and self becomes the most prominent element and idol within a person's life, how much more difficult is it going to become to discover and to understand what right and wrong is? So how do we do it? In John 8, we had a culture that everyone was on the same page because they grew up under the law of God. But here we have a culture that's all doing what they want to do. Self is raised to a standard of excellence, that meaning it is our God. We are acting in this fashion. How then can we know what right and wrong is and navigate such unpredictable waters? The exact same way they did in the Old Testament. The Word of God is going to navigate us through such a time. Notice what he says here. Verse 6. For among them are those who creep in, here are the false teachers, creep into household and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, those are the, the traditional names of the magicians that resisted Moses in Exodus. You can read those accounts for yourself. So these men will also oppose the truth. Men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far for they... Their folly will be plain to all as it was of that of those two men. So Paul says out of this people group that he describes in verses 2 to 5, from among them in verse 6 will come these individuals, false teachers. And that's what we see happening today. As self becomes more prevalent, churches are now beginning to reflect the desires of those people. And those pastors are telling people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And we're going to continue to move in that direction within the false church. But in verse 10, look at what he says. He changes gears now and, re- and now encourages Timothy to remember his past to help prepare him for his present. And future. You, however, though, speaking of Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in 
Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let's stop there for a moment. He's saying that in this cultural context, there will come false teachers. But Timothy, remember that I taught you personally. How would you like that? Mentoring by Paul himself. I don't know, that'd be pretty scary, I think. Then he goes on to say, but now, Timothy, please know what I'm about to tell you. Just as I suffered and he reminded him of Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, now he says, remember all of you, all of you who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted for Christ Jesus. Do you know I once made a statement stating that I never saw that on a t-shirt as a promise I never went to someone's home and found that on their refrigerator as a promise from God that we're going to embrace and keep. Never saw it on a coffee cup. Two months ago, a couple from our church got me a coffee cup with that promise on it, and I have it on my desk now. But understand that if we are going to know what right and wrong is and then choose to live godly lives based upon that knowledge, we can expect to be persecuted for our faith in the cultural context in which Paul laid out there in the first portion of this chapter. We see that, right? It's becoming more difficult to be a Christian, isn't it? As Christianity in many regards is less socially acceptable than it ever has been. I saw a picture that was posted that I kept for myself of New York City in 1956, just before Easter Sunday, and the high-rises had um, lights arranged on the side of them in the form of crosses. And I, oh, boy, that would be kind of neat to see. Wouldn't you love to go downtown and see the, the John Hancock or the Sears Tower? I refuse to call it the Willis Tower. Wouldn't you love to see that? It's just a, a time of years gone by. It's going to get more difficult. But as Paul did it, and Christ saw him through it, so can you. So can I. We have the same spirit. We have the same God that will lead us through those times of persecution as we choose to live godly lives for Jesus Christ, knowing right from wrong in a cultural context that tells us that it's all about us. We are, no, we are saying no. We radically abandon ourselves and live for the glory of God denying ourselves, taking up the cross and following after him day by day by day. That's what Paul is instructing us here. Look at it as he begins in verse 12 again. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will grow on from bad to worse, meaning it's only going to get worse in its endeavors, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with what? The sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus or through Christ Jesus. Today, more than ever, we are going to be challenged to abandon the Word of God and its principles that it performs proposes for us. Today we are continuously being hammered by higher criticism, stating that for us to allow our ethics to be guided by such an ancient, antiquated book is ridiculous. 
And yet we as believers must decide if God has the moral standards and is able to tell us right from wrong, and it is, our, is it our responsibility then as believers in Jesus Christ to adhere to that? Notice how each individual were lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. He begins and ends with that. Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Both outward, selfless, rather than self-centered. They are the antithesis of everything that we are meant to be as Christians. Isn't it interesting that God calls us to love Him on the basis of of the fact that he first loved us. So often I meet individuals who want to question the love of God because they find themselves in difficult circumstances. Circumstances that they never ever thought that they would experience for themselves. And I try to remind them that God's demonstration of love is never meant to be determined by your circumstances. If you are ever in need of reassurance of the love of God, remember this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not uh, perish but have everlasting life. That's where we determine the love of God, that Christ came and died for us and therefore I can say God loves me. And not one circumstance that I face in life is going to change that fact. Right? Right? It's the scriptures, Timothy, the word of God, the sacred writings. Now, Moses coming down from Mount Sinai would have had a great impact knowing that he carried down ten commandments that were written by the hand of God. That'd be pretty impressive in and of itself, wouldn't it? Okay, we need to take a moment to consider this. God wrote it himself on these tablets, but what assurance do we have as Christians today that the New Testament, who wasn't given in that fashion, written by men, how can we know that it carries the same authority as those tablets did? Verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. The sacred scriptures undoubtedly, or writings that Paul refers to here, are undoubtedly referring to the Old Testament. He then moves on to give us this incredible statement of the God-breathed scriptures, which undoubtedly also included, and he was referring to, I should say, the Old Testament. But the New Testament is now included within that. When the New Testament writers were writing, each recognized that these were now Scripture. This is now the Word of God. The book that you hold in your hand is God-breathed before you. Meaning that you can trust it to be the authentic Word of God. Infallible Word of God. As Wayne Grudem stated, he said the authority of Scripture means that all the words of Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or to disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God Himself. 
self. Paul's reminding Timothy, that foundation, that structure that you held so dearly, that your mother and grandmother posed within you, don't abandon it now just because things are getting difficult. Don't leave it thinking that the world is the, is the authority when it comes to all manners of righteousness and sin. It is not. It is still and it continues to be the Word of God. God said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is a statement of consistency. The psalmist tells us that God holds His Word higher than Himself, meaning that you can trust it. For us as believers, it's not time to abandon the Word of God. It's time to embrace the Word of God more firmly than ever. Regardless of the cultural context that we find ourselves in, right and wrong is still determined by the Word of God. How do we know that? Because it is God-breathed and because it carries that authority as if it is the very Word of God itself even though he wrote it through man, allowing for their characteristics still to be preserved in their writing. Notice what Paul says here. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And number one is profitable, meaning it will add to you. It is valuable to you. For number one, teaching. This is where truth is established. The teaching of the Word of God is fundamental in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. For reproof, for correcting those who are wrong, the Word of God is used to do that. You just need to trust that what the Word of God says is what God said. And you therefore can correct that which is wrong. When it comes to correction... Not only does it indicate for us what is wrong, but also tells us how we can make things right. For example, the Word of God tells us, let him who steals, steal no longer, but then adds for us, rather let him labor working with his hands for what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Not only telling us what is wrong, but the Word of God then instructs us on how to do things right. And lastly, for the training in righteousness. The grace of God teaches us to live godly lives, but the Word of God traces out in details the things which go to make up a godly life. It is the grace of God that gives us the ability, it's the Word of God that indicates how we should apply that ability and live in a godly manner. That you may be complete equipped for every good work that God has for you. That is our challenge. To know what is right and wrong. To see that consensus that those individuals in John 8 came to that allowed them to move from a compassionate Bible study to a place of severe conviction in their willingness to stone the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, the creation of conviction in the hearts and the minds of the believers in Jesus Christ is formed through the Word of God. It is our job then to be obedient to it. Now, our action in our obedience must be that of love. Love for what? Not for ourselves, not for money, but for God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
How may I demonstrate my love for God? Let it be demonstrated through my obedience to His Word. As He stated in John 14, 15, as I just mentioned, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's our love for God that leads us to obedience. That is what will separate us from this world. The culture in which we live in today is an opportunity like no other. Please don't miss this fact. As the darkness grows darker around us, it's only an opportunity for the light to shine brighter than ever before. And let us be missional, seeking and saving those who are lost in this dark world. Let us be about the Lord's business in these days, regardless of the direction our society carries itself and the culture as it continues to slide down that moral scale. Let us capture this opportunity. Let us capitalize upon it and live for the glory of God and let us be lights to these people, showing them the grace of God demonstrated in our lives that they themselves may experience it in theirs. This is an opportunity like no others. Let us not miss it. But for you and I who are believers in Jesus Christ, the world is not the standard of our righteousness. The word of God is in all things. And we must be adherent to that. Trusting it because it is the very breath of God. These words are breathed out by God through these men who wrote them. And we can trust them with our lives.